This podcast was recorded on Thursday, March 21st at 1.49 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. We've worked very hard uh, to deliver for the middle class, to deliver for Canadians right across the country with real tangible measures that will make, make their homes more affordable, uh, invest in learning, invest in, in uh, high-speed internet across the country, the kinds of things that Canadians know they will be better off for in the coming years, and the Conservatives choose to play politics instead of talking about Are you afraid of letting Jody Wilson-Raybould speak again? Canada has never seen a budget day quite like this. The Liberals have tabled their election budget, handing out goodies for just about everyone. In an attempt to court more millennial voters, the Liberals are introducing the first-time homebuyer incentive. Morneau is also cutting interest rates on student loans. There are close to 150 measures totaling $22.8 billion in new spending. There's money for training, Indigenous Canadians, students and seniors, cities and towns for high-speed internet, for clean cars, for military missions and research and development, cash for nearly everything. The path to balance, however, is still missing. The Liberals expect a $14 billion deficit next year and forecast more, yet smaller deficits for the next four years. Clocking in at 464 pages, there was a lot here for the opposition to criticize. There were signature initiatives in there that were only barely sketched out. But the Tories are more interested in another topic. He won't let her tell her side of the story. We're not going to let the Liberals get away with this attack on our justice system. The Tories are trying to keep the spotlight on Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former Attorney General at the heart of the SNC-Lavalin controversy and accusing the government of trying to muzzle her. The Conservatives' parliamentary tricks interrupted the Finance Minister's reading of his budget and culminated in round-the-clock voting on confidence measures. We had a lot of time to reflect last night as we voted for 31 hours. Missing from those crucial votes were Wilson Raybolt and Jane Philpott, the other cabinet minister who quit, saying she was unable to defend the government's handling of the controversy. Philpott gave a scathing interview to McLean's magazine. She said there was more to the story that needed to be told and accused unnamed individuals of harassment and bullying. Liberal caucus colleagues were unimpressed. Uh, you know, it's one thing to take a hit from the opposition, uh, or circumstances beyond um, beyond caucus or cabinet. It's, it's another thing to take political hits from your own people. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. While the drama continues on the Hill, we thought we'd give you something a little different. The next two weeks are supposed to be all about the budget, with Liberal MPs fanning out across the country in a pre-campaign blitz. So its senior advisors to three former prime ministers were taking a peek at what goes into making an election budget. You can't give everybody what they want because it adds up to more than you've got. Stick around for insights from the days of Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin and Stephen Harper. PM wanted to, decided to have an early election and um, he decided he wanted to use the fall economic update. Uh, he called me the beginning of September. I, I remember it very well because he called me and he said, can you come over if you're not too busy? I said, yeah, but I'm not dressed yet. So, so I came over and he said, I've decided to call an election. And I almost fell off my chair. And 
He said, call your friend, the Deputy Minister of Finance, and tell him I want the economic statement to be turned into a budget, and I want it in two weeks. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so poor Kevin Lynch. I think he almost had a heart attack. My name is Eddie Goldenberg. I was senior policy advisor to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien during his whole term in office. And part of my responsibility was to work very closely with the Minister of Finance, uh, Paul Martin at the time, on budgets and all sorts of other things. I'm not sure how many of them care about the actual nuts and bolts of it. Um, I think that they might be surprised to know just how many um, people are actually listened to and how many people are out there working, and it's a, it's a huge exercise. I'm uh, Michelle Cadario. I'm, I was a former staffer for uh, uh, Finance Minister Paul Martin, and then I was his deputy chief of staff uh, when he was prime minister. Uh, and I also uh, was former deputy chief of staff to Christy Clark when she was premier of British Columbia. The budget banking process. This really is, as you called it, the sausage banking. Rachel Curran, senior associate at Harper & Associates and former director of policy to Prime Minister Stephen Harper. The process starts early. It starts uh, usually in the summer before a budget is issued. In the summer before, maybe in the fall, there'd be a cabinet retreat for a day or two days. And to really have an open discussion of what ministers think that the government should be focusing on. I never found them terribly useful because most ministers uh, believed that the top priority was the priority, it was their priority. To be honest, almost immediately after a budget is tabled, you know, there might be a month or two, and then you start work on the next one. When Paul Martin was finance minister, it began the day after you gave the last budget. Well, I think one of the fundamental issues in planning a budget is uh, the fiscal situation of the country and the economic prospects of the country. Back 25, really 25 years ago, the uh, deficit was very high. The debt to GDP ratio was very high and interest payments on the public debt covered uh, more than 33% of, 38% uh, of my memory is correct. So budget making, Early on in the Creighton administration was, how do we get out of a fiscal mess? It involved, where do you cut and what are your priorities for cutting? So it really starts with the finance minister and his staff sitting down with the, the department officials and getting an idea of what is the current fiscal framework that they're working towards. And then uh, on the political side, the finance minister working with the premier or working with the prime minister, figure out, okay, where do we want to come in? Uh, you know, our, is our goal to have a balanced budget, or are we looking at a certain amount of deficit spending, or are we in the great world of having a big surplus and having to figure out there where we spend it? And so that's the first kind of key decision, in my opinion, that has to be made, is where do you want the bottom line number uh, to be when you actually present it that day? When you're putting your mind to the budget and you're thinking about the general shape you want it to take, you're thinking about what you want your narrative to be, what you want your focus to be, you're going to reach out to uh, stakeholder groups to talk about those priorities and to see uh, what they think should be included in the budget. And these are, you know, the major industry associations, the major consumer groups associations. So they're constantly lobbying government, um, but you absolutely would also call them proactively in the context of budget making. The stakeholders play, it depends on who the stakeholders are. Stakeholders are knocking on finance doors and on other departments' doors 
continually. It, it never really stops uh, because there's always a hope that if you don't get into one budget that you might get into the next budget or you might get into the into that government's platform if all of a sudden you're, you're outside of an election. Um, it's, a, it's a continual process of people coming in and talking to you. The budget process, I think, started probably started in earnest in the fall. Mr. Martin uh, had thematic budgets, so he thought in advance of what the theme would be in consultation with the Prime Minister, not with the Cabinet, but in consultation with the Prime Minister. Under Prime Minister Harper, he was, of course, very interested in policy, very interested in the budget and what was in it and the budget document itself. Um, So we, the Prime Minister's office, would be holding meetings with our counterparts in the Minister of Finance's office continually throughout the fall. Uh, And then the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance would also meet regularly through the fall to discuss content. Prime Minister Kretien was very good at delegating to his ministers, so he didn't want to know everything. And he was prepared to um, to leave his minister. He had confidence in his minister. And he said, fine. He said, you know, you make your proposals. I'll take a look at them. And uh, we'll come to a, conclu- a conclusion. I was personally involved in all of the meetings between the Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance. And at the time, there were very few disagreements. There were some debates, but very, very few disagreements. I think back to our early days when we were... Uh, making really, really difficult decisions as a government um, in terms of the cuts that had to be made to be able to uh, to balance the budget. And, uh, you know, the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Cretchen and uh, Minister Martin at the time had to be in lockstep. There could be no light between your finance minister and, your, and the prime minister when you're undertaking um, any kind of a financial exercise, especially one that important. Because it was also uh, essential that uh, both uh, men, at, men at that time, uh, were out there and actually educating Canadians and talking to Canadians about the tough decisions, both preconditioning the tough decisions that were going to be required and then afterwards, going out and talking and selling the budget and talking to them about um, why. And as well, you know, you need your first minister uh, to back you up, to back up the finance minister around the cabinet table. And that when the finance minister says no, um, that he's actually speaking on behalf of the government. So that process is fairly closely held between the finance department, finance minister's office, and the prime minister's office, with not a lot of involvement by other ministers. But by and large, you can't make, uh, my own view is that you can't make tough decisions uh, in a forum of 30 people. It just doesn't work. So cabinet ministers will write in with their uh, priorities for the budget. They will send a letter to the finance minister and say, here's what I'd like to see. Um, And every cabinet minister always has a long list of asks. Uh, That's always a point of tension with the finance minister who's trying to control government spending, or at least it was under under Jim Flaherty, who is Prime Minister Harper's finance minister. The budget of 1997 was the first balanced budget in uh, almost 30 years. So that the process was more of the minister of finance had to negotiate with his colleagues in cabinet to explain to them that a lot of their uh, wish list could come later, but it wasn't going to come at that time. There isn't much um, back and forth with cabinet ministers themselves. It varies, uh, especially with whether you are having to do cuts. Uh, in those instances, the de- uh, my experience, the departments are very involved because they're bringing forward 
the priorities of their department, and they're defending, in some cases, uh, the continual spending on different, on different items. There isn't really a lot of cabinet involvement, and this may come as a surprise. Often when the budget is tabled, there will be a cabinet meeting the morning the budget is tabled. Uh, And for most members of cabinet, that will be the first time they find out whether what they've requested is in the budget or not. The budget isn't a group writing exercise. Many cabinet ministers just find out uh, what's actually in the budget outside of their department uh, that day as well. Um, And it can be a challenge. The budget of 1995 was a watershed budget because it made major cuts in federal programs. In one sense, it was not a hard decision. I mean, it was, if you look back, we had no choice. But it was a tough decision in terms of the caucus, and it was a tough decision in terms of the cabinet because the government had been elected on, on a platform of a fair bit of new programs. And, you know, I, mean, I know one minister said, before the budget, I remember he said to me, he said, we're going to go down 15 points in the polls when this budget is tabled. And in fact, Canadians had been prepared for it, and the government actually went up in the polls. You know, I'm not going to pretend that when the cuts did come, that some of our caucus were absolutely taken by surprise, that that some of those cuts, uh, I think particularly in terms of some of the military bases that we closed at that time, um, were really close to home. And they were on the front lines, and so it was really important to give them the support and the information that they needed uh, so that they could uh, go out there and talk to their to their local media and to talk to their local constituents. Once the budget is tabled, uh, you can't presume that everybody knows what's in it. So you have to go and try and sell it. Hassan Youssef, I'm the president of the Canadian Labour Congress. What are your impressions of this uh, election budget? Well, there's a number of things there I think is going to improve the lives of working people in this country and uh, are going to make a significant difference over time. I like, of course, the training leave that is going to provide for training as a right because everybody will be entitled to have at least uh, so much training over a four-year period, a week per year, plus some tuition money to go towards uh, your tuition fee over a period of time. I think this is the first time in the history of our country where Canadians actually have training now as a right, not have to wait till you lose your job or uh, you become unemployed to actually access training. And I think this fundamentally will change the psychology of how people view training and more importantly, hopefully, take advantage of it. Hi. Hi, Althea. I'm Kevin Page. I work for the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. I think the theme that they're saying is that there's, uh, you know, Canadians are experiencing a lot of uncertainty. And so they're picking up on this sort of theme that was resonating around the world, around populism. We need to you know, deal with these issues for, that workers are feeling or that seniors are feeling about retirement or young people are feeling about their future and wanting to start a family or get into a house. So, um, but they do it with a lot of small measures. So there's definitely areas through the budget that can make a difference. You know, what they're doing for first-time buyers make a difference. I think potentially it could. I think for uh, First Nations people, particularly in the area of child welfare funding, there's a lot of additional money for First Nations communities that are dealing with, you know, really in a crisis with respect to uh, child welfare issues. So that could make a difference. But from the point of view, like the macro economy, is this budget going to make help us grow our economy in a fundamentally different way? Is it really going to change income distribution in the country? Is it going to, cha- you know, really ch- improve our chances of hitting climate change targets, um, et cetera? I think there's just there's not enough resources in this budget to, to do that. Avery Schoenfeld, chief economist at CIBC. The headline really is a little bit of this and that without a grand theme for this year. 
But stay tuned. There's still an election platform to come. How does an election budget differ from a, a normal budget? It's much more political. Election campaigns can be uh, can be hijacked too, but it's clear that a budget is, you know, it's fundamental to where a government is going. Truthfully, the only thing that makes an election budget is the fact that it is the last one before the writ drops, uh, and so uh, in that there's a lot more meaning that people try and derive out of it. Uh, and there's probably more care that's put into it in terms of what the absolute messaging and theme and, and who are we targeting. My recollection is that we didn't try to target micro groups of the electorate, that we thought it's best to run on an overall platform with, on an overall record. The budget of 1997 was the first balanced budget in uh, almost 30 years. We ended up with a balanced budget ahead of schedule, and it was something that the prime minister was very happy to campaign on. He was thrilled that for the first time since, you know, I forget, 1965 or 68, or there was a balanced budget. And he said, this is a huge accomplishment. But I traveled with him during the election campaign, and he'd talk about it, and and people seemed in the audience to be almost, well, that's what you did for us. What are you going to do for us next? And so it's very difficult for an incumbent government, which is proud of its record, and all incumbent governments are, regardless of the record, to campaign on the record without campaigning a lot on what they're going to do next. So in the 2015 uh, election platform, for instance, there wasn't a lot of big new spending in the conservative platform because, you know, we didn't want to be running into deficit again. Um, for the Liberals, I would say there's probably a bit more room because they're willing to run up those deficit numbers a bit, but they're still up against their own ceiling, self-imposed ceiling of the debt-to-GDP ratio. So even then, they will be working within the numbers um, outlined in the 2019 budget and designing their campaign platform with those numbers in mind. Uh, they'll make a calculation also about whether they can afford politically, I think, to run bigger deficits than they have been already. Uh, and if they decide their political calculus is, you know, we can explain bigger deficits, then that will give them a bit more room in their campaign platform. I don't believe that uh, budgets have to be balanced. If it's within a range of, you know, if the budget deficit is less than 1% of GDP, uh, it's not something anybody has to worry about. So I kind of look at it in, in there's kind of an offense and a defense that you that you lay out when you're putting together your budget. On the offense, you you have the programs and the initiatives that you want to be talking about as you go forward. Uh, these are the things that you want Canadians to um, identify with your government and that they speak to who you are. And then there's then there's the playing defense. And that that's kind of where some of those um, pressures kind of come up that uh, maybe you didn't put enough money into a certain program. The take-up was a little bit uh, more than you expected, and as a result, you've got to you've got to put in some more money. Maybe we're into an era of every budget being primarily a political document. 
but a pre-election budget, an election year budget, is hyper-political. It's targeted at the voter groups that you want to target during the election campaign. Um, And it also forms the basis for the platform that you take into the campaign. And this was true for the Harper government too, right? The 2015 budget was the basis for the 2015 election platform. It's great if there are perfect, if there's some great opportunities in there uh, that the opposition then votes against. Because you can use that as you're on the hustings and riding by riding, saying that, you know, um, uh, the Conservative or NDP uh, voted against X initiative. And uh, if they if they hadn't, uh, you know, uh, you, you have to elect us because we're the only ones who are in favor of building this bridge or or putting in this transit line or this home ownership program. Uh, so uh, in some ways, uh, you are setting up more so than in previous years. Uh, your opposition. The budget has always been the premier document. You saw um, the finance minister, Bill Morneau, saying, you know, this is a budget that's going to address voter anxieties about a range of issues. And you could see very clearly that the government had gone out and conducted some focus groups and it had asked people, what are you concerned about? Like, what is on your mind? What the budget 2019 is trying to do is it's trying to, you know, tell people that we can we can have an impact in a variety of areas, and uh, that's very commendable. Another approach would be to say, no, we're not going to do something in every area. We're going to do two big things in two different areas. And that also would be a commendable approach. What you try and do is lay the foundation so that, that you're going to be consistent no matter what the program is that kind of comes upon it. The Trudeau government, their first budget with their uh, child benefit was an example of a uh, one big priority. And I think that was something they're going to be talking about a lot more in the election campaign than a bunch of little ones. They've said consistently from the time that they were elected in 2015, they're working for the middle class. And that was the, um, I think, the underlying tone underneath this budget, that they are doing things that will help the middle class and help affordability for the middle class. Number one issue for a whole bunch of people, particularly people in urban areas around Toronto and Vancouver, housing affordability. It's the first thing they tackled in that budget, and it was a really big piece of it. What else are you worried about? Well, finding a job if you're a young voter, or keeping a job if you're an older voter and you're worried about technological change and whether you're going to be able to keep up with the pace of change and hang on to your job. Okay, so we're going to address skills training for you. Um, Students, what are you concerned about? Debt, student loans. Okay, we're going to have something on that for you. Seniors, what are you concerned about? Um, Well, having a secure retirement and maybe prescription drug costs. So we're going to act on both of those items. So you can see them going through the checklist of voter groups, particularly those who are important to them, and saying, okay, these are your worries, these are your anxieties, we're going to do something in each of these areas. So it's really a budget designed by focus group. The first budget of Mr. Trudeau was uh, a budget that was focused on a uh, very important child benefit and some tax reductions and some tax increases at the upper level. And that was a budget focused on really important priorities, but relatively narrow priorities. Uh, Sometimes you get to a point in governing where you can't keep saying no to everybody. 
so you have to spread it out a bit, and that's what they're doing this time. Those were the voices of Edward Goldenberg, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien's senior policy advisor and now a partner at Bennett Jones. Michelle Cadario was Deputy Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Paul Martin and also to BC Premier Christy Clark. Michelle is CEO of Vanguard Strategy. You also heard from a regular on follow-up, Rachel Curran. She was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Director of Policy. She's now a Senior Associate with Harper & Associates. While the Liberals are out shopping their budget, some MPs will be back in Ottawa next week. That's when the House of Commons opposition-led Ethics Committee will discuss whether it will launch its own investigation into the SNC-Lavalin affair. My name is Michael Chong, uh, Member of Parliament for Wellington Holton Hills. The Liberals are clearly making a very desperate attempt to change the channel from their refusal to address this violation of our Constitution. And it's clear that he pressured the former Attorney General to stop the trial of SNC-Lavalin. And when he didn't get what he wanted, he removed her and put in place an Attorney General that he thought would do what he wanted. It's as simple as that. And um, the House of Commons, its committees, and its parliamentary parties have yet to uh, bring this matter to a conclusion. Uh, there's been no uh, motion of censor adopted, no motion of contempt adopted, no motion of any sort of reprimand adopted. And in fact, the PMO has used its powers uh, to shut down the Justice Committee and prevent uh, corrective action from being taken. My name is Jenny Kwan and I'm the Member of Parliament for Vancouver East. I think that the government is hoping uh, that uh, uh, the budget will uh, take people's attention away from the SNC-Lavalin scandal. You know, the sunny ways uh, are so, so far gone. The feminist government approach uh, and the rhetoric that they have put forward with respect to that has clearly not matched with the actions. And the SNC-Lavalin and their treatment of the former uh, Attorney General clearly indicates that. Late this week, Jody Wilson-Raybould sent a letter to the Justice Committee telling them she plans to offer a written submission with the text messages and email exchanges she promised to provide more than three weeks ago. The drip, drip, drip of the story is causing a lot of Liberal MPs to lose patience with their colleagues. Given that they continue to wreak havoc, um, you know, seven months before an election, I mean, how long do you put up with that? Well, you, have, you should ask, be ha asking them whether or not they still believe in this Prime Minister and this government and the agenda of this government. I mean, uh, yes, there's issues. Uh, families have disputes. I mean, do you think they're trying to take down Justin Trudeau? Ask them. And do you think that she was not loyal then by coming out with that interview, especially when you're trying to sell the budget? How, how loyal is that? Well, it's hard to explain why she did that. But the reality is, is that at the end of the day, uh, we are a team. And the most important is, uh, is team spirit. Those were the voices of Tourism and Official Languages Minister Mélanie Joly, Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, MP Adam Vaughan, and Liberal MP Francis Drouin, along with reporters Joan Bryden, David Cochran, and Julie Van Dusen. our show. If you enjoyed this episode on Apple Podcast, please leave us a review. If you have an idea for a future show or just want to share your comments, please drop me a line. You can reach me through social media at Althea Raj is my handle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
A huge thank you this week to our audio editor, Laura Howells. And a behind-the-scenes note, Stephanie Werner, who has been with Follow-Up since the beginning as our technical producer, bid us farewell this month. I love your creative process. That was awesome. <laughs> she played a major role in crafting the sound of this program. That was nice. That was good energy. So thank you, Stephanie, for all of your work. Follow-Up is researched and scripted by myself with the incredible assistance of Ottawa reporter Zian Lum. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great weekend.